Hello and welcome to the Fortune and Freedom podcast, where Nigel Farage and Nikolai Hubble give you a unique take on what's really going on in the world of finance, investing and politics. We hope you sit back and enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome to Fortune and Freedom. In this video, we're going to tie together three different news stories that you've probably heard about this week because we believe they are all bound together by one underlying trend that does offer an investment opportunity. The first news story is the ongoing revolt against green policies, especially in the EU, but also right around the world. The second point is the failure of energy grid systems in places like Alberta, the Tennessee Valley, and of course, the UK and Germany. And the third point is the ongoing boom of interest in nuclear power and the investment angle that's been added to that in uranium, which is absolutely surging in price. I'm joined today to discuss all of this by John Butler, the Investment Director of South Bank Investment Research. Pleasure to be here, Nick. You've written this article, John, that was picked up by Zero Hedge, which is an immensely popular website. And it was all about pitchforks in the EU. So can you explain to us what's going on there and how does it tie into those three stories? You're seeing an upsurge of populism in Europe, and, and it's been brewing in Germany for a while, but now it's beginning to boil over a bit. The fact is, is that in the EU, the so-called common agricultural policy has been an extremely important aspect of European politics and the EU's base of power, as it were, for decades but now, because of the climate agenda, they're beginning to reframe that common agricultural policy to subsidize farmers relatively less and tax them relatively more. And, and you can imagine how, how farmers feel about that. So it's not just Germany, but in, in Germany specifically now, you're seeing very, very large protests against these changes in policy, policies that used to favor farmers and give them support and are now basically saying, we're terribly sorry, but the climate agenda trumps any sort of uh, prioritization of food security, food affordability, making sure that, our, that we have a robust farming industry. That doesn't go over very well with farmers. And to be honest, that doesn't go over very well with lots of people. So that's fueling this, what you might call populist movement in Germany and elsewhere in the EU. It's a classic example of interventionism at work with this bait and switch of we'll make you dependent on us by subsidizing you and then we'll yank it away. And the same thing, of course, happened with diesel cars. You know, we'll, we'll subsidize them because they're cleaner and all of a sudden they're not and you know, you yank the subsidies and you leave these people high and dry. It's the latest example. But it seems to me the anger this time is quite focused on those Greens policies. Uh, the Greens being in power, of course. You and I both speak German. We've been following this the international media is not picking up on that green specific focus as far as I can tell. No, I don't think they are. I mean, I, I read the German newspapers to stay in touch with what's going on there. And it really is front page news. And it's been front page news most days uh, over the past week or so. And they're very clear. And, and, and look, if there's one thing the German press is good at, it's detail. They might still have a narrative. They might still have an agenda but they will offer much more detail than you'll tend to get in the UK or US press, for example. And so, yes, they go into the detail. What specifically are they protesting about? And it's clear they are basically saying that they do not believe that the climate agenda trumps food security and affordability and viability of the farming industry in Germany. Full stop. 
So that's clear in the German press. But yes, you're quite right that outside of Germany and certainly here in the UK, we have scant idea what the hell's going on. Um, we just we're, we're told in the very brief media coverage we get, oh, these farmers have suddenly become more racist, more far right, more bigoted than they ever were. Really? That's not true at all. Speaking of races, bigoted and more far right, we've got the Alternative for Deutschland, the new political party that's focused on the east of Germany, which means their their national poll statistics are quite misleading. But they've got now a higher share of the vote in polls than any of the three governing parties. Um, the governing parties being uh, the Greens, the Liberal um, FDP, and of course, the, the left-wing party, the SPD. Does that mean at the next election there's going to be not just, you know, uh, an uprising and, and protest, there's going to be an actual political shift as well? Well, there certainly could be. I mean, look, I'm not a German political expert, but I have been following the rise of AFD, Alternative for Deutschland, uh, for, for the, you know, roughly, how, how long is it now? Roughly 10 years it's been around. And they really struggled at first, but something changed over the past few years. Actually, oddly enough, I think it was the COVID lockdowns. Uh, AFD really championed uh, the freedom movement against those lockdowns. And I think that won them a lot of supporters who they would not otherwise have gained so quickly. As you say, they poll much, much better in Eastern Germany than Western Germany. Will they win enough seats to cause uh, mayhem in the Bundestag? It's possible they could win enough seats to kind of do to Germany what Herd Wilders has done in the Netherlands, that is to make a ruling coalition extremely difficult to form without that, that party. So they could be kind of a spoiler party in that sense, even if they're not in a position to be able to join the government themselves. But that is nevertheless significant, where it's the most significant of all, if you ask me, if you start to add up Herr Wilders, AFD, Meloni, and some of the, uh, you know, uh, uh, sort of Eurosceptics in Italy, Marine Le Pen and Eurosceptics in France, you start to add all these people up, and guess what? Actually, the European Parliament is going to end up with a Eurosceptic majority in the next European elections. That's very, very possible. What on earth is the European Commission going to do when the parliament that has to ratify essentially all of their uh, major policy initiatives is Eurosceptic? The EU is going to get is going to absolutely seize up. Um, and, and who knows? Maybe that's a good thing. Uh, but in a way, you could argue that the UK is actually in an enviable position to be able to kind of sit back and eat the popcorn watching that one from afar. Climate change skepticism is also growing in the UK, though. There's a bizarre report out from uh, an interest, um, a lobby group that was published in, in The Guardian. Um, and it claims that a third of UK teenagers believe that climate change is, quote, exaggerated. And there's, there's growing beliefs of a, of a similar sort uh, about you know, green energy policies and climate change policies and the science itself. Um, it was quite an interesting report because it focused as well on what was being published on social media and on YouTube. Um, obviously, people published to demand. And the idea was that um, th this boom in videos of climate change skepticism and green energy skepticism is slowly sort of shifting the youth. Uh, but I suspect what's really going on is that people are starting to experience the consequences of all of these green policies. And what I'm referring to there is basically 
uh, the threat of rolling brownouts and blackouts, which has suddenly become pervasive. The news stories over the last few weeks, months have included Alberta, which asked people to manage energy demand. Uh, the Tennessee Valley Authority, which is about 10 million, I think it's people or, or households, they asked people to manage demand. We've had this happen a few times in the UK. In Germany, it's causing a huge amount of chaos for industry to not have enough energy. This is suddenly popping up all over the place. And what do you think is going to happen when you know, the grid operator is constantly asking people in, the, in a cold spell to, to use less energy? Well, look, it's kind of funny how we ended up here, right? Um, you could argue that uh, this is just the latest example of learning what the road to hell is paved with, right? I mean, the road to net zero is paved with good intentions, and we'll look, look where we are. Um, as far as young people are concerned, uh, I suspect it's a combination. That is, even teenagers are just old enough to have some sense of historical perspective. And if one of the first lessons that you learned when you started kindergarten um, was, oh my God, you know, if we don't cut carbon emissions, the world's going to end before you become an adult. Well, now you're a teenager, you're well on your way to becoming an adult, and that hasn't happened. So there, there might already be some sense of historical perspective, even amongst these relatively young people, because the indoctrination started from day one, you know, the moment they entered the classroom. They started, you know, their, their learn how to read book was, you know, Jack and Jill, you know, went up the hill and uh, there was a mudslide due to, you know, severe rain. And and then when they got down, you know, there was no food to eat because it was too dry. And that, who knows what it was? But you, you get my point. But yes, also the draconian side, the really heavy handed side, you know, you will use less energy and you will like it. I mean, that doesn't necessarily go over too well either. So it could be a combination of the above. And <laughs> Sorry, Nick. But but you but you see what I'm getting at. Uh, it, it, it's there's it's hard. Once upon a time, the climate narrative was very positive, very optimistic. It's hard to be positive and optimistic when you've been consistently wrong. And you're increasing you're increasingly relying on various forms of coercion and force to accomplish your objectives. It rubs people a very different way. And these people are now starting to experience the consequences of those policies. And you know they they have to manage their energy demand, and then the you know, industry is declining. That that has a real impact on their day to day life. It just it strikes me as a fascinating point that people are even considering accepting constraining our standard of living to fit into whatever amount of energy renewables can provide at the moment. I just can't imagine that working out politically. People won't accept that that and that that way of life. And that's where we're at already uh, in some places more than others. But we can't continue to go down this road if we've already got these problems, even if it's just in the occasional place, because we're seeing what's happening in places like Germany. We're seeing what's happening in places like California and, and Tennessee Valley Authority um, area and, of course, Alberta. And so it seems to me that we might get not much further down this road of green energy. The, the, you know, the peak might already be in. Uh, and you can almost say the same thing about EVs, you know, that EV sales are crashing. We're getting so many reports about fires of EVs. We're getting reports about abandoned EVs because the temperature is too cold. It feels like the reckoning has arrived and it's powerful enough to start changing opinion and policy. I, I would agree with that. I, I, think, I, I think it's becoming clear that the entire net zero agenda is 
sadly, fundamentally incompatible with the concept of popular democracy. Humans are wired to want to pass on a better world to their children. And while there might have been a lot of propaganda rhetoric and so on regarding net zero and some sort of green dream of everything being better, I'm afraid that reality is not bearing that out. And so you have this sense of, maybe, maybe this overstates it a bit, but a sense of panic amongst adults today who either do have children or are thinking of having children that they may be unable to pass on a better world to their children in part due to the high taxes and other issues associated with with uh, the net zero agenda that really focuses the mind that really changes the way people think in a in a big big way you have to be a real zealot to tell you know, your baby when you're, you know, you're cradling your newborn in your arms. And, and I mean, congratulations on your recent newborn. I, I, imagine, you know, you're cradling that newborn in your arm. And you're saying, look, I'm terribly sorry, but there's no way in hell I'm going to pass on a, a better world to you. Sorry. We cannot do that. We're, we're wired to not be able to do that. And I think that is beginning to have political implications. And that is part of the populist uprisings that we're seeing in Germany, Argentina, the United States, just about everywhere. Sorry to interrupt, but if you're enjoying this content, you can get it every single day. Just click the link in the description or go to fortuneandfreedom.com. Get a daily email from our team of experts. Thank you. There is light at the end of the tunnel, though, and it's nuclear powered. There's been this bizarre resurgence in nuclear power in places that you wouldn't expect it, including Australia of all places, uh, one of the most hostile places for nuclear power for a very long time. Um, but the list is, is vast now. We had announcements in the UK about uh, nuclear focus. We had the French actually abandon nuclear, sorry, abandon renewables energy targets in favor of going more nuclear. Um, we had the Japanese add um, some, some life cycle time onto their nuclear plants. And, and the list goes on. This, this power plant in Finland is working out quite well. So the narrative on nuclear has shifted quite radically. And that's now playing out in financial markets. We've got the yellow cake ETF. I think it's doubled in the last 12 months. Um, we've got new uh, energy stocks related to nuclear and uranium. Uh, they're up about 50% over the same time frame. This boom is on. Are you worried that it's too early for uranium stocks and the uranium price to move, given how long it's supposed to take to actually get nuclear online once governments have started to make that shift? No, I don't think so. I think this is a mega trend. I, I started writing about this several years ago. That is, it seemed to me that the only way in which you could continue to provide uh, the energy that is naturally demanded by a growing economy, but do so in a way that ticks the relatively, relatively clean energy box, relatively safe energy box, and all of these things, was to pivot to nuclear, and that's the word that I used. I, there was going to be this green pivot from wind and solar to nuclear, and clearly we're seeing that now. But it's very early days, and the, the idea that this is a flash in the pan, absolutely not. Keep in mind, China and India, yes, they are building nuclear capacity, but they are still huge and growing producers and consumers of coal. And at some point, they will go through a similar process that we've seen in Europe and North America, 
where people decide, hey, you know what? I love working in this big city. Lots of jobs, lots of opportunity, but it's a bit dirty. I'd like to clean it up. Could we please transition a bit away now from coal to nuclear? They haven't even really begun to do that yet. That may happen in 10 years. It may happen in 20 years. It might happen in 50 years. But someday, they're going to want cleaner cities too. And nuclear is the only way that we know, based on the physical laws of the known universe, to transition away from fossil fuels and all the associated emissions to something that provides for a cleaner local environment. Nuclear is the only solution that we currently know and have. And at some point, they're going to move in that direction too. So we're talking very early days when two thirds of the world's population hasn't even got the memo yet properly. It's been interesting to watch the anti-nuclear lobby react to this sudden boom of interest in the nuclear power industry. Uh, they've done some interesting things. There was a debate in Norway about cost estimates for the recent Finnish um, nuclear power plant that opened. Apparently, they did some dodgy cost estimates that misled people in Norway about how cheap nuclear power really is and overestimated what it might cost Norway to do the same thing. Similar issue in Australia where the government's estimates of what nuclear power might cost were exposed as being pretty dodgy. Uh, they assumed that renewable energy would have access to batteries in people's homes and therefore wouldn't need to build their own storage. And they assumed that the energy infrastructure that must be built in order to connect renewable projects would be built anyway. So therefore, you can't attribute its cost to those renewable projects. So the, the movement against it is already you know, really opening up and becoming a big issue. Why is that? Is nuclear a threat to renewables? I think it is because I can't really envision a system that's that, that marries very well between nuclear power and renewables because nuclear, it's very reliable and safe and so on and so forth. But you can't dial it up and down in a way that matches renewables very well. You need you need something like gas or, or coal or batteries uh, on an incredibly large scale in order to do that. So to me, it doesn't make sense to have a, a mix of renewables and nuclear. You might as well go 70, 80, 90% nuclear um, and, you know, obviously there's always situations when different forms of other energy are really suited. So leave however many percent are free for those. But I don't understand why you need renewables if you're going to go with nuclear to the extent that the UK is going to. I think it's 40 or 50 percent. Um, why not go to the French level of 70 percent or 80 percent and just dispense with all this nonsense about ridiculous infrastructure and ridiculous batteries and, and these uh, wind farms that take up lots of space and do environmental damage and solar panels that are reliant on Chinese industry and all these problems. We could do away with all of that by transitioning to nuclear. So why do it, you know, in a half-baked effort? I think there are two reasons for that. And this is going to come across a little bit cynical. I, the first reason is that people want to virtue signal and it's much easier to virtual uh, to virtue signal around wind and solar uh, than it is nuclear. Um, I mean, the fact is, right, nuclear power does leave nuclear waste that does need to be handled very, very carefully, which is going to linger for thousands of years and 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 be a hazard. And, and there's no real getting away from that. I mean, that 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 is something that needs to be taken into account here. It's not as if nuclear is completely a free lunch, as yeah, as as you say, it, it ticks the base power box and all of these things and it's affordable and et cetera, et cetera. But. Fine. You know, people like to virtue signal and say, ah, but, you know, wind and solar don't do that. Well, they do and they don't. I mean, some of the uh, some of the uh, waste of solar panels and waste of uh, wind turbines uh, isn't exactly lovely uh, in a landfill either. 
Um, but of course, they don't mention that part. So that's that's one aspect is the virtue signaling aspect. The other aspect, and this is even more cynical. Politicians love things that need to be subsidized because it gives them a reason to exist. If you if you champion an industry or a technology that simply won't survive without subsidies, well, guess what? They're going to vote for you at the next election. Everyone who works in that industry, you got their vote because if you do not subsidize them, um, well, you know, anyway, but if you do, it's a buying votes campaign. So there's both the virtue signaling and there's the buying votes. They're both very cynical views, but I think actually they do kind of help to explain why there is such enormous political support still for these technologies that have just consistently overpromised and underdelivered vis-a-vis nuclear, which pretty much does what it says on the tip. Let's tie all three stories together again. If we assume that governments have woken up to the nuclear opportunity and they decide to increase the amount of nuclear energy to a, quite a high percentage, uh, and this solves a lot of our problems, it's going to take 20 or 30 years to get there. So what's going to happen in the meantime to the green energy story and to the pol- political situation? Because, I mean, there's a fair few elections within those 20 to 30 years. Uh, and are we going to be stuck with these faulty grids that, you know, can't manage energy demand each time it's it's too cold or too cloudy or not windy enough? Uh, is, I mean... I can't imagine the damage that would do to society over the next 25, 30 years. In fact, I would be worried about a political party that is, you know, what the AFD is constantly being accused of being, actually get into power somewhere in Europe on the back of the fact that, you know, the light's going out. Look, you could argue that this is going to be cathartic for society. I mean, imagine going through a prolonged period of realizing that a government-directed, top-down energy policy imposed on you um, is 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 not working out very well. Maybe, maybe people need to learn this lesson, right? Um, I think it was H. L. Mencken, uh, the, the the U.S. newspaperman and and satirist, who once said that um, some something about democracy is is a, a means for people to get what they want, good and hard. You know, so so you think this is what you want, but then you actually realize, holy, you know, maybe this isn't all that was cracked up to be. Maybe we need to go through this. Maybe this is why the Greeks were correct in sensing that everything went in cycles when it comes to at least human events. They go in cycles. You, you need to go through the, the failure of this top-down energy uh, policy, this green dream that, that, that uh, has been, to some extent, imposed on us and realize that, in fact, it's a green nightmare and, and, and wake up to it and realize, okay, we're not doing that one again. We're actually going to do... Uh, what works. Uh, We're going to do what's proven. We're going to do what private enterprise can do without subsidies and taxes, uh, without quotas, without uh, restrictions, without other other, uh, impositions on our liberties. It could be that we come out of this in a much better place, but that will take some time because a lot of damage has been done. It sounds like a painful reckoning. I'm going to have a go at that H.L. Mencken quote. I think it's uh, democracy is the theory of government that the average man knows what they want and deserves to get it good and hard. It seems to me that's what's playing out now. Um, I want to remind people though that this does create that investment opportunity in the nuclear sector, which is really what you you and I do all day is trying to figure out what these sorts of opportunities that are popping up really mean. Uh, for investors and how they can make money to protect themselves. So if you've enjoyed this video, maybe you'll check out our newsletters, Fortune and Freedom, or over at South Bank Investment Research, our publisher. John, thanks very much for joining us. And to everyone at home, thanks for watching.
Well, thank you for watching, and I hope you agree it's never been more important to take control of your own money, your own financial situation. We do a daily free email, a fortune and freedom daily email with lots of knowledge, lots of insight. It's a very useful way of protecting yourself for the future. So please click the link in the description or go to fortuneandfreedom.com and get my daily email. Thank you.